You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land of imagination. Next stop, the Twilight Zone. In the Twilight Zone Companion, Buck Houghton says of the episode Mr. Beavers, that one was my least favourite. Somehow it just didn't come together. It was apples and oranges. I didn't think there was any excitement or interest. You just wondered, why watch it? And it's not just Buck Houghton who feels this way about the episode. At the time of recording, Mr. Beavers currently holds a rating on IMDb of 6.7, which, if you're using as a measuring stick of fan reaction, would put it in the lower tier of Twilight Zone episodes. So I suppose there isn't much for me to say at this point. Instead, let's just let Rod Serling set the tone for tonight's episode, Mr. Beavers. In the parlance of the 20th century, this is an oddball. His name is James B.W. Beavis, and his tastes lean toward stuffed animals, zither music, professional football, Charles Dickens, mooseheads, carnivals, dogs, children, and young ladies. Mr. Beavis is accident-prone, a little vague, a little discombobulated, with a life that possesses all the security of a floating crap game. But this can be said of our Mr. Beavis. Without him, without his warmth, without his kindness, the world would be a considerably poorer place, albeit perhaps a little saner. Should it not be obvious by now, James B.W. Beavis is a fixture in his own private, optimistic, hopeful little world. A world which has long ceased being surprised by him. James B.W. Beavis, on whom Dame Fortune will shortly turn her back. But not before she gives him a paste in the mouth. Mr. James B.W. Beavis, just one block away from the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on the 7th of June, 1960, written by Rod Serling and directed by William Asher. Now, this would be Asher's only entry in the Twilight Zone, which in the grand scheme of things, probably isn't something he'd want to brag about. But he was a very accomplished director, and he helmed an incredible 100 of the 179 episodes of I Love Lucy between 1952 and 1957, as well as 132 episodes of the classic TV series Bewitched during the 60s and early 70s. Given the tone of those shows and their huge and loyal fan bases, this sort of comedy should have been par for the course for someone like Asher and, to be fair to the man, the direction of the episode isn't where it fails. So I think it's fair to say that it's more of a reflection on Serling's script as to why the episode falls flat. Now, originally Rod Serling wrote Mr. Beavis to be a pilot for a TV show starring Twilight Zone legend Burgess Meredith, in which our titular hero would get into weekly scrapes only to be bailed out by his guardian angel, J. Hardy Hempstead. But when Serling heard that Burgess Meredith had turned down the role, he slotted the script into the Twilight Zone episode we're currently discussing. Knowing that, I think it's clear as to why this episode feels out of place against the rest of not only season one, but the original series as a whole. That's not to say that Mr. Beavis is the only light-hearted episode in the Twilight Zone as a whole, but we will be running into this type of episode again with the Season 2 episode Mr. Dingle the Strong, which, funnily enough, featured Burgess Meredith in the title role. But there's something about Mr. Beavis that just doesn't feel very Twilight Zone-y, if we want to coin the term. 
I guess we can look into this a bit later on, but it does raise the question that had Burgess Meredith not turned down the role, would Mr. Beavis have been a successful show? Based on the evidence we're presented with, it's likely that it wouldn't have, but you do find that even the most maligned of shows has its fanbase, and perhaps Mr. Beavis might have been a cult favourite for some, but as I say, I guess we can look into that a little bit later on. So in between Serling's opening narration, we're introduced to Mr. Beavis. He's a man with an almost childlike innocence, and his apartment is decorated with the bric-a-brac and oddities that I guess is designed to show how quirky Mr. Beavis is. Beavis slides down the banister and in doing so flies out of the door with a comedic pratfall. He then gets into his beaten up car which has to be push started by the local kids of the neighbourhood and it's, it's quite the opening I'll be honest and it's almost hard to find the words to really describe it. The one thing I will say about Mr. Beavis is that he's clearly a liked man. He's unique to say the least, but he's a clearly a popular man in his building block and with the local kids. And when we see him in his office a bit later on, he's certainly greeted warmly. The episode does do a good job of setting this up. It's, it's not a great episode by any stretch of the imagination, but I think it's one of the strong points of the episode if I was to find some sort of praise to give it. You know, outside of the trivia about this originally being a pilot, there, there isn't a great deal to say about the episode, and it's hard to critique a comedy that fails to this degree. There's only so many times you can say, it's not funny. Uh, last year I was writing a review of The Hangover Part 3, and I was just kind of lost for words on what to say about it. It's, when a drama fails, you can talk about why it fails, but when a comedy fails, it's so much harder to give criticism. We'll see how we get on, but I'd really rather this episode not just be me playing clips and narrating the story while reminding you that the clips are not funny. So Mr. Beavis arrives late for work and he is called into a meeting with his boss, Mr. Peckinpah, where he is promptly fired. I'll be brief, Beavis. You keep a ledger like an ape. Your desk is an affront to any concept of orderly symmetry. Your eccentricities are beyond any kind of understanding. You're bringing phonograph records of Zither music to play during the afternoon. You're hiring Christmas carolers to come in and serenade the office during our busiest hour. Thanks. The sack, Mr. Beavis? The sack. This is the sixth job I've lost this year, Margaret. Well, the best laid plans of mice and men. And Beavis. I'll help you pack, Mr. Beavis. I was building this for one of the kids. It's old Ironsides, the Constitution. Well, she won't get launched today, that's for sure. Old Ironsides will get launched. You'll get another job, Mr. Beavis. You always have. The only job I've ever held for more than six months was during the Second World War when I was in the Navy. Here. This is me next to the fantail. Oh, he's fat, isn't he? That's the bosun's mate. This is the fantail. I've got to be honest, I wasn't exactly sure what zither music was, and I thought it was because I was a child of the 80s, and perhaps my youth soundtrack of grunge and metal had skewed my view of music. But I wanted to look it up, as zither music is brought up a lot in this episode, and it's clearly something Rod Serling thought was odd for a person to like. For those who might not know, it's a musical instrument with up to 50 strings and like a guitar, the body of the zither acts as a sound box. 
Apparently, the earliest form of zither music was formed in China in 433 BC, but I suppose its relevance to Serling and the Twilight Zone came from the genre's resurgence and rise in popularity in 1950 due to the British movie The Third Man, starring Joseph Cotton and Orson Welles, whose soundtrack by Anton Karras spent an impressive 11 weeks at the top of the Billboard chart. I guess it could be seen as an eccentric choice of music taste and I'd be interested to hear what other people think about this one. Is it really something that is so odd for someone to listen to in the office? So it's not going well for poor Beavis as his beloved Rickenbacker is in a car accident and when he gets home he finds out that he's being evicted from his apartment. Drowning his sorrows in a bar, he looks into a mirror and sees a man toasting him. When he turns around, there is no one there. Bartender. All right, bud. Would you kindly tell me what are the ingredients of this drink? Well, you said you wanted to get fortified, pal. I put everything in there but atomic energy. Does that explain why I can see him in the mirror, but I can't see him in the booth? See who? Whom? Objective case. Quite right, Mr. Beavis. Home. Objective case. Well, Mr. Beavis, we meet at last, eh? That's very nice, and, and who might you be? Whom? Objective case. The name, for purposes of identification, is J. Hardy Hempstead. I'm your guardian angel. J. Hardy Hempstead was played by Henry Jones, who was quite a prolific Broadway actor during the 1930s, but he did amass a good amount of movie and television roles, including 310 to Yuma, Arachnophobia, Butch Casting the Sundance Kid, and Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. He was apparently a favourite of Alfred Hitchcock, but he would claim that he didn't get regular starring roles due to his bland appearance and some of the newspaper articles upon his death in 1999 commented that his face was as plain as his name. He was once quoted as saying, The casting directors didn't know what to do with me. I was never tall enough or good looking enough to play the juvenile leads. His daughter said of him, He looked like an everyday man, the guy next door. I wouldn't say that his performance here is particularly great, but again, I think it's down to the script more than anything else. You know, it's funny that the last episode that we did, A Passage for Trumpets, also featured a guardian angel, and I think the performances of John Anderson and Henry Jones are very different. I mean, the two episodes are worlds apart in terms of tone, of course, but Gabriel was a much more likeable guardian angel who was there to help, rather than being someone who is halting Mr. Beavers being the man he really is. So, J. Hardy Hempstead explains to Beavis just how he came to be in his presence. Alan, you were saying you were my... what was it? Your guardian angel. Mr. Beavis, here's the way the uh, cookie crumbles. Several hundred years ago, one of your ancestors performed an act of great courage. Now, part of his reward was to have a guardian angel assigned to one of his descendants in each generation. Current subject, 
James B.W. Beavis. That's you. Mr. Beavis, in the past few generations, I've handled some extremely solid citizens among your presenters. For instance, Magellan Beavis, an intrepid explorer of the 16th century. Parnell Beavis, a member of the British Parliament who fought for home rule against insurmountable odds. And more recently, Gunner Lou Beavis, the first Marine to hit the beach in Nicaragua. That's Uncle Louie! And he also sets up the terms of their deal. Now, today you had a very uncomfortable time. You were fired from what was your 11th job in 18 months. Well, Mr. Peckinpah didn't like zither music. Well, I can't say I blame him for that, but that's neither here nor there. The fact is, I can reconstitute the whole day, Mr. Beavis, so that its final upshot will be exactly opposite to what it was. So, let's go back to this morning and start all over again, hmm? You mean, I can have the day to live over again and, and, and it won't be the way it was? Definitely not. We change some aspects. Inevitably, we naturally have to change certain characteristics of your own. Uh, your clothes, for instance, Mr. Beavis. <laughs> Are you serious? I look like an undertaker. That may well be. But if you want the day to end differently, you're going to have to be a little bit different yourself, Mr. Beavis. Let's go. There isn't much time. Well, I certainly want to thank you for taking all this trouble with me, Mr. Hempstead, whoever you are. You know, not a Christmas goes by where you don't hear about how much people love It's a Wonderful Life, and how can you not? I mean, it's such a classic piece of cinema, and Jimmy Stewart is so good, and the movie's climax is so heartwarming that you can't help but love it. The general conceit of the movie, if you've not seen it, is the idea of what life would be like if George Bailey hadn't existed and his guardian angel Clarence walks him through that world. By the end of the movie, and I'm sure I'm not spoiling anything here, George discovers that he has made such a huge impact on people's lives and that his existence isn't a burden on anyone that he has to go back to it. In some respects, Mr. Beavis shares similar ideas, and I think I might be the first person to compare the much maligned Twilight Zone episode to Frank Capra's classic. Beavis has his own guardian angel, only this one shows him what life would be like if he had a different personality. Would he have the affection of the local kids, or would the ladies in the office show him as much attention as they do now? It's an interesting idea that I don't think is fully explored, and perhaps we'll talk about this a bit later on. So Beavis relives the day again, only this time he has to be the new Beavis, and not the old one. The first step to this is not sliding down the banister, and Jay Hardy Hempstead has also given him a new car. What are you looking for, Mr. Beavis? My car, my Rickenbacker. Correction, you don't drive Rickenbacker. That's your car. That little thing? Well, gee, do you think it fits? Mr. Beavis, live it up, will you? But have you ever driven a 1924 Rickenbacker? My dear Beavis, I've driven a chariot with 11 horses. I'm the guy responsible for Ben-Hur winning. And the old Rickenbacker went out with the old Beavis. You're a different person now. No more bow ties, no more zither music, no more Christmas carolers in the office. Though the latter idiosyncrasy met with some approval from the organization, Shall we, Mr. I think it's pretty clear that I'm not overly fond of this episode, like many others aren't, but here's my main problem with Mr. Beavis. Everything that happens from here on is just a repeat of what happened before, and what I mean by that is, 
Beavis will see something different, ask why it's not like how it used to be, and then get told by J. Hardy Hempstead that this is the new Beavis. Whether it's his car, his desk items, people's reactions to him, etc., they repeat the same formula. It gets very tiresome very quickly, and in the end, Awesome Beans' as Beavis isn't likeable enough for this to be considered life-changing. I just can't see anyone watching this and being saddened by the fact he no longer has a ship in a bottle or likes zither music or wears bow ties. So Beavis arrives at work, and the people who used to greet him warmly now treat him rather coldly. That is except for his boss, who now welcomes him into the office with open arms and even gives him a $10 a week raise. So things seem to be going good for Beavis now. He's got a smarter dress sense, he's got a raise in his salary, and he's even got a nice car. However, what Beavis discovers is that all the stuff he lost from the previous day doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter that he's had numerous jobs over the last year or so, or that he's been kicked out of his apartment. What really matters are the things that make him unique. And so, he asks for J. Hardy Hempstead to put things back the way they were. Beavis, what do you say we level, hmm? Now, what is it that you really want? You know, for a fellow like you, a $10 raise is the most that even I can get for you. To use the vernacular, Beavis, frankly, I don't dig you. I'm used to Beavis's with big dreams, gigantic hopes, fantastic aspirations. Magellan Beavis sailing around the horn. Parnell Beavis standing alone in Parliament, thundering out his convictions. Gunner Lou Beavis, Semper Fidelis, over the top boys, nobody lives forever, let's go. But, Mr. Hampstead, I don't like to appear ungracious, but well, the things I like, the things I believe in, I know they're odd, they are worth considerably more than $10 a week. So I'm to take it that you prefer the bow tie and old Ironsides, hmm? I'm afraid that seems to be the case. Now, you realize it's going to be exactly the way it was? No job, no car, no place to live at the moment? Well, it's been that way before. It's uh, complicated, is it? With everything back to normal, Beavis is once again drinking in a bar, and as he walks out, he's given a ticket by a traffic warden for parking in front of a fire hydrant. But when the warden points to the fire hydrant, it disappears and reappears in front of his own police car. Which, I guess, would have been the setup for the hijinks that they would have gotten into had this stayed as a pilot and become its own show. Still with me, huh, Mr. Hampstead? Still with you, Mr. Beavis. Still with you. I've not talked about Awesome Bean yet, as I wanted to put him side by side with Burgess Meredith. He was a busy actor during the time period, and he had a lot of bit parts over the years. He did have a few recurring roles in Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman and Normal Ohio, but perhaps he's best known for providing the voice of Frodo and Bilbo Baggins in the Rankin-Bass animated adaptations of The Hobbit and Return of the King. He also played Dr. Lester in Spike Jonze's Being John Malkovich, and he had a couple of bit parts on How I Met Your Mother and Two and a Half Men. However, he was probably more prolific as a Broadway actor, and he was even nominated for a Tony Award for his run on Subway's Alpha Sleeping. 
you know, I'm sure he tried his best with what he had, but there is just something about Awesome Beans as Beavers that doesn't quite work. I said earlier that he's quite unlikable and kind of annoying, and I think that's a combination of Serling's script, which has its problems, don't get me wrong, and Awesome Bean's performance. But I suppose the question is, could Burgess Meredith have pulled this off? There's no denying the range and skill of Burgess Meredith as an actor, and his broad range of characters would indicate that he probably would have got something from the Mr. Beavis role. Comedy was nothing new to him as an actor, and he can play the bumbling simpleton while not being too over the top. You've only got to look at time enough at last to see that kind of character. But no matter how good Burgess Meredith was as an actor, I don't think there would have been any escape from Rod Serling's script. It's really where the episode fails, and it's probably why the idea of a weekly Mr. Beaver show wouldn't have been successful. Maybe I'm being overly harsh on it, I don't know. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Do you think that Mr. Beavis would have worked as a weekly television show? I mentioned earlier in the podcast the idea of being shown how a different personality could change people's views of you, and I think that would have made for a more interesting story. Perhaps one of the problems with the episode is we don't see how Beavis's personality change affects those around him to any real degree. We see the kids don't talk to him, and his co-workers aren't quite as jolly towards him, but it's all very central to how Beaver sees himself. Had they explored this a bit more, perhaps it would have been a better episode. It would essentially be It's a Wonderful Life, only with personality replacing existence, but hey, could have been any worse than the episode we got, right? Mr. James B.W. Beavis, who believes in a magic all his own. The magic of a child's smile. The magic of liking and being liked. The strange and wondrous mysticism that is a simple act of living. Mr. James B.W. Beavis, species of 20th century male, who has his own private and special Twilight Zone. So that's Mr. Beavis. You know, it's funny, I spent a lot of time writing these episodes up and scripting them, getting facts and clips, etc., and... Yet every time I finish one, I always seem to think of something that I've missed or forgotten to say. No matter how many notes I make, something always slips through my fingers. For example, on my way home to record this part of the podcast, I was re-listening to Tom's episode he did for Time Enough at Last, which is one of my favourites of the series. And although it was fairly obvious, I suppose I never really noticed the similarities in not only the names of the characters, but their personalities, etc., something that was also highlighted in Douglas Brody's book. Further to that is this little piece of audio. The sack. This is the sixth job I've lost this year, Margaret. Well, the best laid plans of mice and men. And Beavis. I'll help you pack, Mr. Beavis. The best laid plans of mice and men. And Henry Beavis. Yeah, little things like that always seem to escape me, and that's why I think listener feedback is an important part of this show. I'd love to hear your thoughts, and I don't know, maybe you think Mr. Beavis is a decent episode. I got this piece of feedback from a listener called Travis, who had some very kind words to say about the podcast, but also these thoughts on the episode, and he mentions another comparison piece that I forgot to mention. Travis writes, Regarding the episode Mr. Beavis, I don't think my opinion is too controversial when I say it's maybe a little bit bad. I'm not sure I can think of any comedy episodes on the Twilight Zone that I do like. 
Serling was brilliant, but perhaps not the best comedy writer. I have a soft spot for Orson Bean, but even he couldn't save this episode. What makes matters worse is that this episode is essentially repeated verbatim beat for beat in the season 3 episode Cavender is Coming. And he also mentions Orson Bean went on to play Professor Ellis in the Twilight Zone radio adaptation of The Changing of the Guard. That's great stuff there, Travis. Thank you very much. I feel almost silly not mentioning it in the show, but I guess I was so focused on Beavis' success as a spin-off show that I forgot that Serling would copy the formula again in Cavender is Coming. I'll give my thoughts on that episode when we come to it a little bit down the line, but what I will say is that I think Cavender is a much better episode. But then again, that's not really saying much. If you wanted to get in touch like Travis did, you can leave a comment on thetwilightzonenetwork.com or email me at luke at thetwilightzonenetwork.com. You can find the show on facebook.com forward slash thetwilightzonenetwork and on Twitter at twilightzonenet. And if you want to contact me directly on Twitter, you can find me at LukeWrightStuff. So, after a couple of middling to poor episodes, next week we'll be tackling one of the bigger pieces of the Twilight Zone, Rod Serling's Tale of Terror, The After Hours. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.